Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, everyone. Look, today we're going to be looking at Vienna in 1913. Mm. And it's sort of known as the, well, we'll get to it later, but I love this phrase, the laboratory of the apocalypse. Right. But if we're looking at Vienna in 1913, we're going to need some background. We're going to go back a few centuries, don't we, Paul? Well, that's it, because a lot of people always ask me, you know, how come Austria ends up being so great? Isn't it, you know, some sort of mountainous country the same as Switzerland, you know, with one becoming Mr. Neutrality, while the other gives rise to one of the biggest, most warmongering empires in history. Right, because it's true, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, Switzerland and Austria, they're often seen as a bit of a twin because of the Alps, but really, that's only the western finger, the western wedge of Austria, if you like, sticking out into the mountains. The eastern half, which of course is where your Vienna is situated and where the real business of Austria takes place, this eastern half is mostly fertile plains stretching either side of the real key to the whole story, the River Danube. Ah, right, the famous Blue Danube. And with you, Paulie, I always knew there'd be a river involved somewhere. (laughs) That's right, yeah. So we've got the Danube, haven't we? The longest river in continental Europe. Personally, I don't (laughs) include the the Volga because it geographically goes the wrong way. But the Danube, it's the longest river, and it's also the massive trade archery in that whole eastern part of the continent. And really, Mikey, you can go back centuries, can't you, in terms of the Danube's importance? Because, of course, it was key enough to mark a halt to the Roman Empire's expansion northwards back in ancient times and in more modern eras on its banks have sat no less than four European capitals. Here you've got Vienna, Budapest, Bratislava, Belgrade. And in fact, you could say there's five because Bucharest might as well be on the Danube. It lies so close on the Dambavita Argos tributary. Five European capitals, that must be some sort of record. It certainly is, Mikey, and it's this strategic position on the Danube that really sets up Vienna for its success. Right back from medieval times, and one of the key moments in 1365, when the Vienna University was founded, making it one of, of course, you know, the oldest universities in the world. But in many ways, that's just the beginning, because it soon becomes the capital of the Habsburg Empire in 1556, um, after the Habsburgs have gained control, not just of Austria, but also now Hungary and Bohemia. But like you said, yeah, it's the century leading up to World War One that we want to concentrate on today. And I suppose Vienna really adopts this central political position in Europe following the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when it plays host to the Congress of Vienna, that key meeting 1814-1815, which decides how we're going to redistribute the balance of power after the fall of your little corporal. It's following this Congress that Vienna really hits its stride. In fact, it's at this stage, Mikey, that Vienna hits something of a purple patch. You see, the city's heavily involved in the 1848 revolutions, which break out across Europe, and it's the result of this that Franz Joseph I becomes Emperor of Austria. Now, of course, it's under Franz Joseph that Vienna evolves into the modern city that we know today, with the infrastructure improvements and the rapidly growing economy and population. 
But I suppose its main advantage, certainly compared to Switzerland, is that Austria is much more united because, of course, everyone is speaking German. And that gives the Austrian economy ties to the newly emerging economic power bases like Prussia, whilst at the same time maintaining through its position on the Danube its status as gateway to the Black Sea and all the trade that comes to that out east. And we're back at the Silk Roads again, aren't we? We are, but I'm not going to go down that route. Let's stick to Vienna, let's stick to Austria. But it is worth noting at this stage, Mikey, that Vienna does become the third biggest city in Europe after London and Paris in the 19th century. And that actually makes it the fourth biggest city worldwide at the time. And it's this economic might which really gives Vienna its prowess, which only builds once the Austrian-Hungarian Empire is formed in 1867, whereby Vienna now becomes a truly imperial capital with all the cultural growth, flourishing music scene, architecture and painting movements that have become synonymous with the city. Indeed, at its height, Mikey, this Austro-Hungarian Empire, it consists of 15 nations and over 50 million people, making it one of the biggest units of power, not just in Europe, but anywhere in the world. Which brings us nicely to your 1913 and the build-up to World War One, The laboratory of the apocalypse. I just love saying that phrase. Okay, in the year of 1913, all the major protagonists we're going to talk about in this episode either lived in or frequented an area of central Vienna that consisted of little more than two square kilometres. We're talking homes, coffee houses, bars, theatres and plazas. Now let's start with coffee houses. The obvious place for many of these historical figures to rub elbows. Now, there was a legend for years that the coffee houses in Vienna go back to a guy called George Franz Koschitzky. Now, he opened one of these with the coffee beans that had been left behind by the Turks following the siege of Vienna in 1683. Ah, yes, 1683, which is a key date, isn't it, Mikey? But interestingly, it wasn't the first time the Turks had laid siege to the city, was it, Mikey? Because they've actually turned up in 1529. And in fact, if we're speaking of forces coming in from the east, we should also mention 1241, shouldn't we, when the Mongols reached right up to the gates of Vienna and only turned back because news arrived that the great Mongol Khan Ogodiah died and all the key military commanders were now ordered to return back home to settle his succession. Which precisely confirms your point, Paulie, that Vienna is a key buttress point, a terminus for interactions and conflict with the East. Which brings me back to the coffee houses. Yes. Now, the story of the Turkish beans and that guy, George Friends. Well, actually, modern historians seem to think that there might be a second person involved alongside my man Kolchitsky, someone described as an Armenian spy mm. from, the, from the same year, a guy called Johannes Diodato. Right. And here's the thing, he'd worked with the Turks, so he didn't know how to make coffee. So when he opens his coffee house in 1683, mm. well, it's not like a coffee house as you'd think today. Right. It's more like a, a spy speakeasy. Ah. It, it required a special knock and a password before you could enter. Right. It, it was the centre of Viennese espionage. Also, to remember coffee houses, folks, because they will make a reappearance. Right. Right, so you're saying the coffee houses are, are important, Mikey, but what's so special about 1913? Where does this phrase, the laboratory of the apocalypse, come from? Well, it's in reference to Franz Ferdinand. Now, we spoke about him in the start of World War I With episode. assassination, yeah. yes. Well, it's after his death, an Austrian writer, a guy called Karl Kraus, he, mm-hmm. he's been described as Austria's George Orwell. Right. Well, he's looking back on 1913, and he describes it as an era so deplorable for humanity, 
which in our Austrian laboratory of the apocalypse is expressed by the grimace of gummetlick. A gummetlick. Yeah, it's an old German word for comfortable, cushy, allegedly sickness, and he's saying that in reference to Franz. Ah. Because in his socialist mind, Franz Ferdinand was an epitome of decadence. Right. Let's not forget that when Kaiser Wilhelm first heard of Franz's assassination, he was said to have been relieved yes. that the threat to the Habsburg line posed by Sophie, Franz's wife, had been removed. Oh, yeah, that's right, because Kaiser Wilhelm, and in fact most of the aristocracy at the time, they were looking down their nose at Sophie, weren't they, because of her supposed low status? Yes, indeed, mate. But if we are talking heavy hitters in Vienna, we've got to mention the Rothschilds. Now, of course, the Rothschilds are originally from Frankfurt. They rose to prominence with the work of Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who lived from 1744 to 1812. He establishes a banking business in the 1760s as a court factor, literally a Jewish financier, a tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages, mm. to the free city of Frankfurt, part of the Holy Roman Empire since 1567. Now, when he dies, unlike previous court factors, he manages to bequeath his wealth to his five sons. Mm. Now, they establish offices in London, Naples, Paris, Frankfurt, and Vienna. Now, Vienna was established by Solomon Meyer von Rothschild. Oh, right. So that's why we get the logo for the Rothschilds with the five arrows. You're all bound together. Exactly. Mm. Now, in the 19th century, the Rothschilds financed Britain's wars against Napoleon. They also funded Alliance Assurance, which is now Royal Sun and Alliance. They helped set up Rio Tinto, Aramat and De Beers, mm -hmm. as well as funding Cecil Rhodes and what became Rhodesia mm -hmm. and the building of the Suez Canal. They also provided the backing for over a billion dollars in today's money for war bonds for the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. That's just naming a few. Wow. Now, by 1913, their European power base was the huge Palais de Rothschild Vienna. Right. Which had been in the possession of Ludwig Nathaniel von Rothschild since his father's death in 1911. Mm. In fact, in 2020, the Austrian art historian curator Tom Juncker put together an exhibition that looked at the cultural impact the family had on the city at this time and, of course, the many anti-Semitic attacks on the family as Jewish financiers that went along with it. Now, here's the thing. Ludwig Nathaniel would later run up against another character from this time that we're going to look at, Hitler. Right. After the Anschluss of 1938, he was captured and actually held hostage by the Nazis and eventually freed. What, Ludwig von Rothschild? Yes, that is after the Rothschild family paid a ransom of some $21 million, wow. which is still considered to be one of the largest ransoms ever paid. But, Paul, we can't talk Vienna 1913 without talking about Freud. Mm. Now, by 1913, Freud was already a well-established and world-famous psychoanalyst. But here's the thing. His apartment at Bergrasse 19 was also filled with art and antiques. Not many people know this about Freud, mate. He, he was a bloody shopaholic. <laughs> he actually wrote, The filthy lucre runs through my fingers at such a frightening speed. He even confessed to Carl Jung, I must always have an object to love. Mm. And he loved it, mate. By his death in 1939, there were over 2,000, not just antiques, but objects of antiquity right. in the inventory. We're talking everything from a Greek vase to supposed mummy bandages from an Egyptian tomb to first editions of Dickens, mm -hmm. Zola, and what he claimed were original Shakespearean folios. Well, he claimed that anyway. But here's the thing, Paulie. These were not always purchased on the level. He was more than happy to buy antiquities on the black market, mm. justifying himself with this quote, For I am actually not a man of science, not an observer, not an experimenter, not a thinker. I am by temperament nothing but a conquistador, mm. with all the curiously daring <laughs> and tenacity characteristics of a man of this sort. Right. Here's the other thing about him, too. Now, despite the fact, and we'll get to this later, that Vienna was producing some of Europe's most important modern art, 
He despised contemporary art. He was once talking to his friend Oscar Fister about expressionism and sighed, As far as these artists are concerned, I am almost one of those whom you castigate as philistines and lowbrows. Here's another thing too, and despite the fact that many surrealist painters would bang on about the role of the subconscious and Freud's insights in inspiring their work, he derided the whole surrealist movement as complete fools. Mm. But there's one last thing about Freud I want to talk about. Yes. His daily routine. Right. Freud would finish his lunch, usually meat and veg, followed by strudel and cream. Mm. Yum, yum, yum. And he'd take a brisk 2pm constitutional walk around the Ringstrasse, mm. which is Vienna's grand tree-lined boulevard. Yes. Now, another huge fan of the Ringstrasse was an unemployed artist, for want of a better word, Adolf Hitler. Ah. Hitler loved nothing more than to loiter on the ring and would later say it had a magic effect on me, as if it were a scene from the Thousand and One Nights. So what? Hitler and Sigmund Freud, they could have even passed each other on the street. All right, folks, so we're talking the grand old dame that is the city of Vienna, and we're talking about its key year, 1913, when, as Mikey said, it's seen as something of a laboratory of the apocalypse. We've already had the obvious big hitters, Franz Ferdinand and Sigmund Freud, but with the outbreak of World War I on our doorstep, I suppose we've also got to talk about the revolutionaries. Let's start with Trotsky. Okay, Trotsky settles in Vienna in 1908, the same year as Hitler. He joins the editorial staff of the Russian-language newspaper Pravda, meaning truth. Now, the Bolsheviks they must have really liked this title, mate, because <laughs> they took it back to Russia. Yes. They took it back to Russia. And Trotsky, it was actually said to be furious when he heard that the St. Petersburg communist newspaper Pravda had stolen what he regarded as his title in 1912. Ah. And this is important. The other thing about Trotsky too, mate, he was a regular at the Café Central, along with Freud, Hitler and Lenin when he was in town. Mm. Now, Trotsky by this stage is known as an active communist. Sure. There's even one famous story about the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, a guy called Count Berthold. Now, he's arguing with a local politician at the Café Central. Now, the politician was arguing that any war with Russia could weaken the Romanov dynasty and cause a Russian revolution. Mm. Bertolt dismissively responds to this idea by joking and points to a fellow patron and says, and who will lead this revolution? Perhaps Trotsky sitting over there? Apart from this insult, another thing that would have really soured Trotsky's mood occurred in January 1913, mm. when a man with a passport that bore the name of Stavros Papadoulos arrived in Vienna via train from Krakow, Poland. Stavros? Mm. Yeah. Well, Trotsky would later write, I was sitting at the table when the door opened with a knock and an unknown man entered. He was short, thin, his greyish-brown skin covered in pockmarks. I saw nothing in his eyes that resembled friendliness. Mm. The stranger was, in fact, and here goes my Russian pronunciation, Paul, Vissorianovich Jugosvila. Ah, Jugosvili, yes. Yeah, known to his friends as Koba and to history as Joseph, Joseph Stalin. Stalin. Now, Stalin would spend an uncomfortable month in Vienna and he would only meet Trotsky only briefly. Now, let's not forget that Stalin wrote for the St. Petersburg Pravda and that alone was a source of great irritation of Trotsky. Remember, he was, he was ticked off about them stealing the name for the paper. Yes. And it, it appears the feeling was mutual because Stalin, <laughs> after his first meeting with Trotsky, went on to describe him as a paper tiger, a noisy champion with fake muscles and a man who possessed... Beautiful uselessness. <laughs> right. See, Stalin had been sent to Vienna by Lenin to check out the revolutionary groups in the Balkan and the Slavic states. Ah. See, Lenin was keen to harvest the potential of these ethnic nationalist groups. Mm. And he concluded that seeing as Stalin was Georgian and part of that ethnic minority in Imperial Russia, he was the perfect man for the job. Sure. 
But like I said, Stalin only stays in Vienna briefly, and when war breaks out, Trotsky flees to Switzerland. But here's the thing. One of the defining feuds of the 20th century had already been born. Once again, it was this year, 1913. But come on, Mikey, you mentioned him twice already. I know you're itching to get through to him. The real man you want to talk about in 1913 Vienna has got to be Adolf Hitler. Well, I sort of do and I don't, Paul. Look, we all know that Hitler moves to Vienna in 1908, and it's pretty well documented how he fails twice to gain acceptance into the Art Academy. Mm. By 1913, he's selling his postcards on the street. He's either living rough, or when he has enough money, he's staying at the Mendelmannstrasse dormitory for men. Right. Well, what I want to talk about is two Viennese men who had a massive effect on Hitler. Mm. First of all, you've got Karl Luger. Mm. Now, although he died in 1910, Luger's anti-Semitic legacy was a huge influence. He's first elected into Vienna's council in 1874, and he becomes mayor of Vienna three years later. Although, here's the thing. For two years, Franz Joseph I refused to confirm his appointment. Ah. Well, you know, because of his views. Look, on one side, yes, Luger does develop parks, gardens, schools, and hospitals, but... He was an anti-Semitic populist demagogue, and he also gave legitimacy to the extremist views of a guy like George Ritter von Schoner, another huge influence on Hitler. Now, Schoner, he's a nationalist, a pan-German, and a rabid anti-Semitic. It was Schoner who was addressed by his followers as the Führer, ah. and they would also greet him by shouting Heil. Ooh. So obviously he would find a rabid fan in Hitler, and Luger, well, Luger gets several mentions in Mein Kampf for his personal charisma and popular appeal. But to round it all out, Paulie, and here's one that often gets overlooked. In 1913, there's also a guy called Josip Brotz. Josip Brotz. Now, that name rings a bell. Yes, mate. It's Tito. Ah, of course. Yeah, yes. Now, he was born in Croatia, and he was bouncing around Europe at the time, working in factories and getting involved with trade union activism. Now, he finds himself in Vienna in 1913, living with his brother and working at the Daimler Automobile Factory mm. before being drafted into the Austro-Hungarian Army. Right. Now, when war broke out, he would be part of that army's invasion into Serbia, ah. a state that would later become part of Yugoslavia, the country he would rule over as Tito from 1945 till his death in 1980. But here's the thing. Back in 1913, he's in Vienna. He joins the army. After that campaign in Serbia, he's transferred to the Russian front. Ah. 1915, he's captured. But it, here's the thing. When he's captured by the Russians, he learns Russian and enthusiastically reads Bolshevik propaganda. Right. So much so that he joins the Red Guard to fight the counter-revolutionary white uprising. Oh. By 1920, he's back in Croatia, by then part of the newly established Kingdom of the Serbs, Krauts and Slovenes, and he joins the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, <laughs> and the rest is, you know... is history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, folks, so now we know why Vienna was so important in the making of modern political Europe. But it wasn't just wars and revolutions that made it great, was it, Mikey? It was also on the artistic side. Yes, mate, and by now, Vienna has been famous for classical music for over a century. Mm. But the guy I want to talk about is an Italian, Puccini. Right. See, here's the thing. In the late 19th century, operetta was becoming all the rage. Mm. Shorter than an opera, with a bit more spoken dialogue. Look, look think Gilbert and Sullivan. Sure. Operetta was seen as more approachable and potentially more commercially successful than a full-blown opera. Right. And the most famous composer of these works was the Austrian Franz Lehár. Ah. He's best known for The, the Merry Widow. Merry Widow, yes. yes. An international hit since it had debuted at Vienna's Theatre on Divine in December 1905. Mm. You have to remember, Puccini, by 1913, he'd already written La Boheme, Tosca, Madame Butterfly, 
but he wants in on the operetta stuff. Mm. He moves to Vienna, meets Leha, and the two men actually formed a, a bit of a mutual appreciation society. Right. The upshot was Petunie's La Rondine, mm. which sort of echoed Verdi's Traviata, but actually was more downbeat and had a more bitter ending. Yes. So he starts writing this operetta in 1913, but before he can finish it, World War One breaks out. Sure. And here's the thing, too. Italy's joined the war on the Allies' side, mm. which makes it very difficult for Puccini, a proud Italian whose son was in the Italian army, right. to get behind a debut performance of his operetta in Vienna, which was by this stage an enemy capital. Sure. So as a compromise, La Rondine ends up debuting in neutral Monte Carlo. Wow. Which brings me to one of the most important artists of the 20th century, Gustav Klimt. Right. By 1913, he's the preeminent modern artist in Vienna. He's seen as the leader of the secessionist movement, mm-hmm. which had begun in Munich in the late 1890s, and they declared they wanted to secede from the traditional artistic institutions. Right. By 1913, he was a leading figure with iconic paintings from what we know today as his golden period. Right. Both literally and figuratively. The Kiss or the Lovers from 1907-1908. Sure. And his famous portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer. However, in 1913, he scandalised Viennese society by publishing and exhibiting 25 drawings, which were of a distinctly erotic nature. Ah. They're pretty hot, actually, Paulie. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Viennese never had a chance to get over it because actually Klimt dies in 1918 with with complications from that dreadful flu outbreak that spread after World War I. And time for one more, Mikey? Yes, indeed. A woman who's gone down in song, a woman who's gone down in film, a woman who's gone down in literature, Alma Schindler. That was her maiden name. But but for many decades, she had some of the most talented Austrian and German men as her lovers. And she actually married two genuine heavy hitters, the composer Gustav Mahler mm-hmm. and Walter Gropius, the architect and founder of the Bauhaus School of Design. Ah, right. She would even say that Klimt, who we just spoke about, yep. was her first ever kiss as a young woman. Ooh. But what's often overlooked is that Alma herself was a noted composer and author. Mm. This gets overlooked because, well, her time with Mahler... It was particularly strange. Mm. You see, during this period, she completely stopped her own composing to support her husband. And it would appear that she was inspired to do this with not only advice from Freud, but also too by another Viennese philosopher, a guy called Otto Weininger, mm. who'd published a, a charming little tome called Sex and Character, <laughs> right. where he not, not only decries lustful women for diverting their husbands from artistic pursuits, but also too says that a woman should subvert her career towards her husband. Mm. Having said that, it was actually Freud who compelled Mahler to encourage Alma to restart her musical compositions as a way of saving their marriage. It didn't work, and anyway, Mahler soon dies in 1911. Right. But here's the thing, by 1913, she was with the painter Oskar Kokoschka. Right. And it was tempestuous. Oscar measured out all of his canvases in this year to be the exact same proportion as Alma's bed. Right. And this includes his most famous work, 1913-1914's The Bride in the Wind, Mm. which portrays him and Alma embracing in bed together. Look, it's considered to be one of the most important works of the early 20th century expressionist movement. Mm. But like many relationships at the time, World War I intervenes. Mm. Oscar enlists. Now, Alma, she sees this as the best way to end the troubling relationship. The, The couple breaks up. Oscar does not take this well. Mm. He continued to paint works in her name. And look, he even went so far as to create a life-size Alma doll 
which he would not just escort around town, he was even known to take it to the opera and along to parties. And all of this occurred within a few blocks of each other in Mikey's city of Vienna in that fateful year, 1913. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Paulie, you're going to get all august about August. (laughs) 